Good morning. Happy New Year's. I know uh, <clears throat> coming off of what may have been a late night for you, if it wasn't New Year's, it may have been, uh, I heard there was some sort of college football game going on. But uh, it's, uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, it's good to be together this morning as we enter into a new year, as we get to come together and uh, open up God's Word together and study together and, and hear from the Lord this morning. Every time we open up God's Word, every time we read it together, we study it together, we have the privilege of hearing from the Lord. And I think sometimes we take that for granted. It becomes rote. It becomes mundane. It's the same thing we do. We get used to open up our Bibles, whether it's to read at home, whether it's at church, and we just start reading the words. And we forget that this is God's instruction to us. It's His care and concern expressed to us. It's His love expressed to us. And it's an immense privilege we have to come together this morning and each and every Sunday morning and throughout the week to be able to open up His Word and hear from the Lord. Leadership. What comes to mind when I say that word? I'll let you think about it for a second. Maybe visionary, maybe charismatic, confident, resilient, decisive. Maybe the ability to inspire others. Could be an effective communicator. Perhaps it's someone who's fearless or someone who's confident. Maybe some or all of those things came to your mind. Maybe there's a few others that popped into your mind when you think about the word leadership. But the follow-up question is, what does the Bible say about leaders? How does the Bible describe leaders? How does it define leaders? What does it expect of leaders? More specifically, what does leadership in the church look like? How similar, how different do you think, and maybe you know, is biblical leadership from our cultural expectation of leaders? It's really no secret that Western Christianity has experienced a crisis of leadership over the past several years. Seems like every few months, if not more frequently, some new high-profile Christian leader is exposed for secret sin, or maybe sometimes not so secret sin, that's been going on, and we get to witness the subsequent fall and downfall of that leader and the tragedy that follows and the long-reaching effects or far-reaching effects. And while it's most noticeable when it happens in public or with some of the more high-profile leaders. I'm convinced that this is not just a problem for so-called celebrity pastors or those with high-profile ministries. I think it's much more systemic than that, especially in our culture. At the root, I believe, is a misunderstanding or a wrong expectation of what leadership in the church should look like. Really, if I were to summarize it, I'd say that we've become much like Old Testament Israel who looked for a king like the nations around them. And then when they got that king, they reaped the consequences for years to come. Evangelicalism in this country, Christianity in the West, it has suffered a very similar plight. It really has. I think as a whole, we've stopped asking what does God look for in a leader and instead we look at what the Bible says merely as suggestions, and really what we're looking for are leaders who are like the celebrities, who are like the successful CEOs or the charismatic personalities and politicians in the world around us. 
And if we're to avoid many of the consequences of failed leadership, especially as we look to add to and grow the leadership of Canton Bible in this new year, then we must understand what Scripture teaches about leaders. What is important to God when it comes to leadership? We're going to pray and then spend some time this morning delving into this question, really introducing ourselves to this question and to the nature of the church. So pray along with me as we pray for this study this morning and the weeks ahead as we look at leaders and what is really, again, a, something of a crisis of leadership in the church today. Father, we do thank you that we can come this morning, we can gather together, we can open up your word. We've sung your word, we've already heard from scripture this morning. Father, help us to reflect deeply upon the fact that this is you speaking to us. No matter how tired we are, no matter how afflicted we may be, no matter how hard the week has been, as we come together, as we're studying this morning, Lord, you are speaking to us. Father, help us to rightly divide your word, that is, to rightly understand it. And from that understanding, may we be quick to apply. Father, we understand that leadership is, is an important thing. It's a serious thing. It's a serious calling. Father, as we consider that with regard to Canton Bible Church, I pray that we would be a church that's marked by prioritizing what you expect to see in leaders. Not what we may want, not may we, what we may think is good, what we think we must want, but what you say we need. Pray that in your name. Amen. We've got a couple questions I want to also ask as we get started into this. Perhaps questions that you've taken for granted, you may not have thought too deeply or long about in recently. But if someone were to come up to you and ask you, what is the church? How would you answer? What is the church? Maybe I'll start by saying what the church is not. First and foremost, a church is not a building. We certainly colloquialize and talk about a church on every corner referring to a building or we passed such and such church. It's common to refer to a building as the church, but really when the Bible talks about the church, it is not talking about a building. A building a church does not make. Secondly, a church is not a denomination, such as Southern Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopal, name it. These are not a church. Denominations define differences in doctrine between various churches, but they are themselves are not a church. They may be helpful in allowing churches to collaborate and share resources. But again, they are not the church. So what is the church? Well, if you're thinking through the New Testament and you're running through ways in which the term church is used, you realize there's really two different ways, two different contexts that the New Testament speaks of the church. First, it's used of all true believers on earth, regardless of denomination or location. It's a reference to the unity of believers through Christ. So what Jesus meant when he told Peter, you are the rock and upon this rock, I will build my church. It's 
what we find in 1 Corinthians 10.32, Ephesians 1.22. Ephesians 5, that beautiful picture of the church. And while the church is universal in nature, it finds its expression through local gatherings of believers for worship. The sacraments, teaching, preaching, edification, building up of one another through the use of spiritual gifts and exhorting one another to love and good deeds. And so we have these two different ways in which the term church is used, but it's not referring to two distinct groups of people. It's referring at times, depending upon context, to all believers and at other times to a local visible expression of some of those believers. And so we find the term church referring to, probably most frequently in the New Testament, though certainly not exclusively, to local gatherings or collections of believers. In Revelation 1, chapter 1 through chapter 3, for example, we see seven very specific local churches or gatherings of believers. At a very high level, that's what the church is. But here's the second question for you. And again, it's probably one you've taken for granted. You probably haven't thought about this question, at least not recently. But how important is the church really? Really, how important is it? Well, let's look at a few passages and establish the importance of the church. If we're going to talk about leadership in the poor church, it's important to understand how important the church is. One I've already mentioned is Matthew 16, 19. And when we think about the importance of the church, I think one of the most, really the foundation we should go to is the foundation of the church. Where did it come from? Where was it established? Who established it? And it was Christ himself. Christ established the church. Jesus founded the church. If that wasn't enough, you can turn to Acts, toward the end of Acts, in Acts 20, verse 28, we learn not only did Jesus found the church, but he purchased it with his own blood. What is the value of the church? Valuable enough that Jesus would purchase it with his own blood. Not only that, the church is called the body of Christ. We see that in Ephesians 1.23. We see it in Ephesians 4.12. We are reminded that the church is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Reminded that in 1 Corinthians 3.16-17. through 1 Corinthians 6.19. Romans 8.9. And verse 11 and verse 16. The Holy Spirit dwells in the church. In the believers of the church. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2. In 1 Peter 2, we are reminded that the church is the chief instrument for glorifying God in this world. In chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, we read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
The list continues. The church is the instrument for bringing the gospel to the nations in this age. Matthew, the end of Matthew, in Matthew 28, as well as the end of Mark, but Matthew 28, we read in verse 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's clear from this list, which really only scratches the surface, it's very, a very brief overview, that the church is important. It's incredibly important. It's important to God. It's important to the spiritual well-being of all believers. It's important to the mission of God in this world. Now, throughout history, there have been many who believe that Christianity and the church should function without any formal organization, that to provide organization is artificial and it inhibits the growth and the ministry of the church. However, a quick survey of the early church throughout the New Testament, beginning with the very first local assembly in Jerusalem, reveals that there was certainly some level of organization in the church. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. In fact, this is a spot you can maybe earmark for this morning because we'll return here a couple of times. Down in verse 37, and I'm going to read this section, verse 37 through 47. And while I'm reading, I want you to be asking those who, what, where, when, why, how questions with regard to, is there organization in the church? Now, when they heard this, this is the crowd to whom the apostles were preaching, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. As we look at the Jerusalem church there with regard to some of its organization, 
We notice that they were coming together to observe the Lord's Supper. There's a coordination that goes on in that. There's an organizing that goes on in that. You look in verse 41, and they noted that there were 3,000 added. Added to what? Added to the church. How did they know that? They were keeping track. They kept track of membership. We see a similar recognition of members and keeping track of members in 1 Timothy 5.9 where Paul gives instruction on when a woman should be enrolled as a widow for special care and provision. In verses 44 through 45, they organized to provide for those in need, dispersing to any who had need. How did they find out those who had need? There was a structure, there was an organization. Turn a few chapters over to chapter 6 of Acts. As the disciples were increasing in number there right at the beginning, some of the Hellenistic Jews, that is the Greek Jews, had a complaint because they felt that their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving and administration of the food. So the apostles, the twelve, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we, we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then it goes on to describe their choosing, their selecting of several men. Perhaps most famous is Stephen, the evangelist. But you begin to see very early on in the church a need for some level of organization and structure. It becomes very notable that in addition to these who are serving, elders begin to be appointed in the churches. In Acts 15.2 it says that they were appointed by the apostles in every church. In fact, it's interesting, once they're appointed in the church in Jerusalem, you never find the apostles acting without the elders in any sort of administrative position. And this corresponds to what we see as Christianity continues to expand. Elders, not apostles, are appointed in the churches. Elders were appointed in every church according to Acts 14.23. Paul commissioned Titus to appoint elders in every city of Crete. Crete, by the way, was known as the island of cities. There were a lot the Ephesian church had elders. Acts 20, 17, verse 17. Elders and deacons are found in the Philippian church, in Philippians 1, 1. And not only did the new and expanding churches organize under leadership, but they also mobilized to minister the saints to the saints and meet needs. The Corinthians, they would set aside funds for collection on the first day of every week to minister to the needs. As I've already mentioned in 1 Timothy 5.9, widows were cared for in Ephesus. In Corinth, we find them practicing the sacraments, even though Paul has to instruct them on doing it a God-honoring way. So then we see that structure, organization, at least loose structure and organization, was there in the church from the beginning. But before we return to the question of leadership and the administering of this structure. There's another important question I think we need to ask, and that's this. What are the ministries of the church? What are the ministries of the church? What is the purpose of the church? God founded it. Christ founded it. It's important. He bought it with his blood. It's precious. But what is its purpose? Why was it put here on this earth? 
Well, first, we see for the teaching and preaching of God's Word. There's a number of passages you could go to for this. One of them we've already read, which is there in Acts 6, verses 3 through 4, where the apostles tell the brethren they've got to keep focusing on this preaching and teaching. So raise up other leaders to help him minister. But to the church in Colossae, Paul writes in Colossians 1.28, saying, We proclaim him in admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Paul tells Timothy to preach and teach the Scriptures. In 2 Timothy 3.16, where he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you, Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Another important ministry of the church is fellowship, the ministering of believers to one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul exhorts the church in Thessalonica saying, Therefore, encourage one another, build up one another, just as you also are doing. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thirdly, the church, the purpose of the church is to worship the Lord. There's a number of passages we could go to. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. Similarly, Paul writes to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And prayer, prayer is a vital ministry of the church. Paul writes again to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 6, 18, saying, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. That is, make it an unbreakable habit. Colossians 4.2, to the church in Colossae, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And what about service? Certainly service to one another, but even service to others. In Acts 2, we saw they began selling their property and possessions, were sharing them with any who might have a need. In Ephesians 2.10, we are reminded that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for those who are in Christ Jesus beforehand so that we would walk in them. 
And then a little bit later in Ephesians, it says in Ephesians 4.11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, that is the church, until we all attain to the unity of faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And finally, evangelism. Evangelism is one of the key ministries of the church. Mark 16, 15, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Colossians 4, verses 5 through 6, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to respond to each person. And to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. These six ministries are the primary ministries of the church, the pillars of the church, if you will. And virtually every other ministry you can think of will fall under these. So now the question becomes, how do we go about this? How are we equipped How do we grow in our capabilities in these areas? How do we become better ministers, better evangelists? How do we grow in all of these areas, better servants? There's two ways God equips the church. One is the Spirit who provides gifts for the church, spiritual gifts we call them. We find the giving of spiritual gifts in several passages. Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, and 1 Corinthians 12. In Romans 12, verse 6, we read, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching. Or he who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. That's the first way the church is equipped to do all these things because these are hard ministries. They're difficult ministries. But the second way that the church is equipped is through the giving of persons through the giving of leaders for the training and the equipping. We've already read it, but Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, where he says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So we see the importance of the church We see the purpose of the church. And now we see the gifts that are given to the church. And where we are going to be focusing over the next few weeks are on these leaders. Sometimes called pastors. Sometimes called elders. Sometimes called overseers. And these three separate terms are 
three descriptions of the same leaders given to the church. These are not three distinct groups. This is one group of persons. In fact, we see those terms used interchangeably in several passages, and there's two places in Scripture where you find all three of those terms used in the same passage. In Acts 20, and then in 1 Peter 5. In Acts 20, you read that from Miletus, he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And then while speaking to him, it says down in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd. You see the elders called, you see them overseeing, you see them shepherding. The term for shepherd and pastor is interchangeable. Pastor is just the Latin word from which we get shepherd. And in 1 Peter 5, Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight as being an overseer, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, proving to be examples to the flock. It is these leaders, again, called at times elders, overseers, or shepherds, who are tasked with the important responsibility of overseeing each local church, again, that expression of the entire church, each local church's spiritual health and growth, of protecting and providing the church through the ministry of the word. And given the importance of the church, given the importance of the ministry of the church, it should be abundantly clear that such an important task as leading this church, this precious church purchased by Christ's blood, requires well-qualified persons. And so careful discernment on the part of the church is absolutely essential in order that the right persons are put into leadership positions. Thankfully, here too, Scripture is not silent. And we're provided with clear instructions on what these leaders and these elders look like. There's two passages in particular that speak to the qualifications of these leaders. So that as the church seeks to identify these leaders, we have an an instructional guide on what to look for in these leaders. I'm not going to read both of these passages this morning. I'm going to read one of them. But Titus 1, 5 through 9, and 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 give those qualifications. And that's what we're going to be zooming in on over the next few weeks. We see Paul, when he had left Titus in Crete, he said, For this reason I left you there, that you would set in order what remains. Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And then he begins, namely, it's these types of men. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach, as God's steward not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. A very similar list is found in 1 Timothy 3 and We'll be looking and comparing these lists in our study ahead. 
This morning, though, I want to conclude by looking at what is one of the most neglected terms used for leaders in the church. Leadership in this world, as we've already observed this morning, is most often associated with terms like assertive, confident, charismatic, visionary, influencer. And my guess is that if you, if you went onto the street and asked 100 people to give their top three words that come to mind when you ask what a leader should be, not a single one is going to say a shepherd. In fact, if you were to offer shepherd as a definition or description of what to look for in a leader to 100 persons off the street, you'd probably get 100 puzzled or concerned looks. What does a smelly, dirty, low-profile, humbling job like a shepherd have to do with leadership? And yet this is precisely what the leaders in the church are called to be. It's no accident that we find Peter exhorting the leaders of the church to shepherd the flock of God in 1 Peter 5 that we've already read. He was the one, after all, who was instructed three times at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in John 20 to shepherd and care for Jesus' sheep. Even more than this, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 5 that leaders operate, these pastors, these shepherds, operate under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. This term of shepherd is the term Jesus chose to use for himself. In John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As one pastor noted, if we want to understand Christian elders and their work, we must understand the biblical imagery of shepherding as keepers of sheep. New Testament elders are to protect, they're to feed, they're to lead, and they're to care for the flock. Now, why do we want to emphasize this quality? Because as we noted at the start of our time this morning, the church has not learned from Israel in the Old Testament. Where Israel wanted a king like the surrounding nations, churches clamor for leaders like the world around us. They want pastors and leaders that look like successful CEOs, celebrities, or charismatic politicians. And I'm convinced that this is one of the primary reasons that the church is experiencing a crisis of leadership. It stopped looking for shepherds. That's why it seems that every few months we learn of some new Christian leader who has fallen, who has disgraced themselves. Why people are fleeing abusive leadership in the churches. And it's in this environment that we so desperately need shepherds. Not kings, not rulers, not charismatic personalities, not visionaries, but shepherds. And so we're going to be spending the next few weeks looking at what makes a leader a shepherd. We'll be spending our time as we evaluate those qualifications from Titus and 1 Timothy for leaders of the church. We'll be viewing them through the lens of shepherding. Now, as we conclude, you may say that was a lot of good information. I feel good about knowing what the church is and why it's important. But what do I do with this? What's my takeaway? I thought about that and started making a list and began to convict myself a bit. So I thought I'd convict you too. I figure it's fair to share, right? Of the church was important to Christ... 
And if it's important to God, am I regularly praying, continually praying for my local church and for the universal church? Are you supporting your local church and its members? Are you doing it through prayer? How about the use of your spiritual gifts? When was the last time you even thought, am I employing my spiritual gift to edify the body and those around me? Are you giving? Are you looking for ways to edify and encourage one another? Are you sacrificially serving one another? Not waiting till it's convenient, but doing it even when it's inconvenient. Inconvenient. Are you praying for the leadership of your church? Are you praising God for the persons he's given to the church? Not just leaders, but everyone. Are you pursuing relationships among the body? Is it a priority for you? Are you applying the teaching of God's word to your life so that you are a joy and a blessing to your leaders and to fellow believers? Or do you just like to come and be fed and grow fat? It's a convicting list. That's where we're going to leave it this morning. But I encourage you as you have time this week to certainly ask and meditate upon those questions and where you can begin supporting your church, loving your church. That is the people who make up the church. But also take the time in preparation for our study over the next few weeks to read that list of qualifications in Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. Begin thinking about it, meditating upon it. You will get much more out of our time together and our study together if you'll do that little bit of homework together. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you. Thank you that you have purchased the church with your blood, that you've called us together. Father, pray that we would we be faithful, this rather convicting list of things, to be faithful prayer, prayer, those faithfully praying for those in the church, serving, using our spiritual gifts, giving, edifying and encouraging, listening and obeying you as we come under the teaching and the conviction of your word. Thank you for how your word speaks. Thank you that you did not leave this precious church that you've established, that you've built without some way of knowing how to proceed in a wicked and fallen world. Father, help us to desire the type of leaders you want, to desire the shepherds you call for, not for what the, the world would offer. In your name, amen. Thank you.